joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. This quote by Sam Storm sums up well the mystery we're going to dive into today. The mystery of courage and joy and endurance in the midst of suffering. It makes absolutely no sense apart from one name. I want today's sermon to be firmly grounded in the reality of our world today. We live in a difficult time with many challenges, COVID, mental health issues, housing crisis, climate change, and the devastating consequences of it, wars, and the list goes on and on. On top of that, we experience personal sorrow and grief. As a church family, we still mourn the loss of our beloved pastor, Andy. We are pressed from all sides. Anxiety, worry, and fear infuse our media and our conversations. Cultural values have shifted and have been turned upside down. But in the midst of our generation's unique challenges, and throughout the ages, rings this incredible statement made by a fisherman turned preacher 2,000 years ago, and it is still proclaimed today around the world. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Men like Peter have risked their lives and ultimately given their lives to proclaim this life-giving and revolutionary truth. What was the secret of the early church to make ordinary men and women stand up boldly and fearlessly against the ruling powers to proclaim this truth? As we read the text today, it seemed to me almost that the persecution in suffering was inconsequential to the disciples. I have heard echoes of this astonishing attitude from people like Muhammad and Fatima. No matter what you do to us, we will proclaim the name of Jesus. Or in people like Brother Andrew, who smuggled Bible, Bibles into countries where their discovery could have cost him his life. How do you get to this point? Were these superheroes gifted with fearlessness and courage that is way out of reach for us ordinary human beings? What was their secret? It turns out, it has absolutely nothing to do with their abilities, but everything to do with the one they loved. 
I want to show from this extraordinary story that Heather read so powerfully to us, how by first being with Jesus, secondly, speaking his name, and thirdly, praying in his name, made these ordinary fishermen ambassadors for the greatest multi-ethnic international movement in the history. At the beginning of our text in Acts 4, the religious leaders are at it again. The same leaders who had delivered Jesus to be crucified now opposed his disciples, here specifically John and Peter. During Jesus' time, it was mainly the Pharisees, an influential religious sect within Judaism, known for their emphasis on personal piety, their acceptance of the oral tradition in, uh, added to the written law, and their teaching that all Jews should observe all 600 plus laws in the Torah. But now, it's the Sadducees. They were an aristocratic class connected with everything going on in the temple in Jerusalem. They tended to be wealthy and they held powerful positions, including that of chief priests and high priest. And they held the majority of the 70 seats of the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. But in truth, they were more like a political party. They were unconcerned with Jesus until they feared he might bring unwanted Roman attention. And because they denied the resurrection of the dead, they strongly resisted the apostles' preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. They thought they were done with Jesus. They had put all this nonsense aside. But instead, here we have two uneducated fishermen who boldly proclaimed that this Jesus had risen from the dead and was alive. And the miraculous healing of the lame beggar was done in his name. It must have pierced their hearts. They arrested them and brought them before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, which was the highest legislative and judicial body in Jerusalem. It was a scary thing then and is now to be at the mercy of corrupt leaders or institutions. In many countries today, sham trials are held, or no trials at all. While they were trying so hard to silence the message, it says in verse 4, but many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew about to about 5,000. That is rapid church growth in spite of fierce opposition. It seems almost their tactics had the opposite result. Now, imagine the scene. 
the highest religious leaders in Jerusalem, no doubt in fancy robes, power on full display. And on the other side, two uneducated fishermen who never made it to rabbinic school, and a former lame beggar healed and no doubt jumping for joy. Certainly an unequal contest. The question rang through the hall. By what power or what name did you do this miracle? Well, this was Peter and John's chance to save their skin. They could have said anything except one name. Instead, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and I imagine he said this in a loud and clear voice, so there would be no doubt. It is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter turned the tables, the accusers becoming the accused, the one you crucified, God raised from the dead. The one you rejected has become the cornerstone. He is not dead. He is alive, and he heals and saves today. And then this magnificent statement. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This verse always touches my heart because I have searched many other names, but there is no other name. Salvation in Greek, soteria, means safety, rescue, deliverance. That's incredible. Peter invokes the name of the one these same rulers had given over to be crucified just a short while ago. That's not a safe move, Peter. What was the reaction of the court? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This educated elite was astonished at the depth and knowledge and courage of these unschooled. In Greek, the word you might recognize is agramatoi. Ordinary, in Greek, the word is idiotai, men. Jesus was basically asked the same question by the Jews in John 7. How did this man get such learning without, without having been taught? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We speak his words, not ours.
I remember Mina, a simple, illiterate, Berber country girl who had never been to school, telling me how astonished people always were at her wisdom. She loved Jesus, and she loved hearing his word read and preached. She was transformed and became a powerful ambassador of Christ to her own people. What to do? They couldn't deny the healing. Many had witnessed it and praised God for it. But they had to stop the spread of this movement. It was becoming a threat to their authority. So, they intimidated them and ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus anymore. A classic move out of the playbook of many authoritarian regimes today. Interestingly, in the next chapter in Acts 5, a very similar situation occurred where more apostles were incarcerated. After their miraculous release, they too immediately went back to preaching. When confronted, they said, we must obey God more than men. And then in chapter 6, when opposition arose against Stephen, it says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. The apostles were bound, but the word of God cannot be bound. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the growth of God's word in spite of opposition. You can harass, discriminate against, threaten, and jail the messengers, but the message cannot be stopped. Again, the question, were they superheroes? Fearless superhumans? Well, let's check out where they were just a few weeks ago. It says in John, in an upper room behind locked doors, because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. So, what had changed? The Holy Spirit came, as Jesus had promised, and he gave them his power. It wasn't the boldness of Peter and John, but the Holy Spirit within them. You know, the Sanhedrin was wrong. These were not unschooled men. They were taught by Jesus for three years. That is the best education possible. They were schooled by the master. I love the second part of verse 13. They took note that these people had been with Jesus. Wow. How? You know how people sometimes take on the flavor of their heroes? They talk like them, they dress like them. I think that Peter and John's boldness reminded these leaders of Jesus' fearlessness in front of opposition. Do we remind people of Jesus? 
Can they tell we have been with Jesus? Are we taking on his flavor? Spreading his aroma in our families, in our relationships at work? I think that's why our time with, our daily time with Jesus is so important. The time when we align ourselves with him and his values, when we abide and rest in him. And you know, the Sanhedrin was wrong on another account. It's not that they were with Jesus, but Jesus was still with them. He promised them, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. After the court reconvened, Peter and John again had the chance to save their skin. They could have said, sure, we'll be quiet, just let us go. Which reminds me of Stia, a woman who was thrown in jail, a mother. She was offered a way out by renouncing Jesus. She also refused. You see, the playbook of the oppressor hasn't changed. Stia chose jail with Jesus over freedom without him. What was their response? I love their shrewd and brilliant answer. Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They appealed to a higher authority. The one these religious leaders were supposed to represent. Here we see the beginning of the persecution Jesus had warned his followers about. Be on your guard, he told them. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your Father speaking through you. In John 15, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way, why? Because of my name. In other words, expect it. Don't let it stop you. Continue to speak of me and I will be with you and my spirit will speak through you. Because it is not by our wit or education, all things are possible with Christ. He can use the most ordinary people, like us, like me. As a young woman with a good job and a bright future ahead, 
God moved me to some obscure place in North Africa, not knowing the language or culture or the unique dangers. It made no sense whatsoever. But I was captivated by Jesus who had saved me. I wanted everybody to know him. He gave me boldness and an incredible love for his people and even the ability to learn Arabic and teach his word in their native language. It wasn't about me, but about the good news of Jesus going into every corner of the planet. And in no way do I want to compare our small sufferings with the immense suffering of the persecuted church around the world. All I can say is that when the moments were darkest, Jesus was closest. He provides wings of eagles to carry us through the storm. He is with us, and he will never, ever leave us. He is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Some of you listening probably are thinking, what an intolerant statement. We live in a pluralistic world. How can there be only one way to God? Isn't radical and exclusive religion the cause of division and violence in the world? Couldn't Peter just have said, Jesus is our way and you have yours? Rome's society was built on pluralism. The conquered people could keep their own gods, but they were not allowed to proclaim their god as superior to each his own. The apostles claim that Jesus was the, o- not, that Jesus was the only way was a direct challenge to the pluralistic worldview, worldview then and now. You know, salvation is not an ice cream buffet where you choose the flavor you prefer. But it's about who God says he is and how God says we get to him. Even Jesus asked for another way. If this cup could pass. But there is no other way. Because our greatest sickness is the sickness of sin. And sin had to be atoned for. Jesus bore the ultimate pain, the wrath of God, so we could live. It's by his wounds that we are healed. What a savior. We have all seen the horrendous images of wildfires and hurricanes on their destructive path. The firefighters and rescue teams are not intolerant when they show you the way to safety. It is actually the most loving and caring thing to do. I am praying that for someone listening today, it will be the first time you speak Jesus' name 
not as an expletive, but as a plea. Jesus, save me, because there is no other name. I have the privilege at my work to bear witness to people's struggles and pains and walk alongside them. It makes me feel good when I can fix their TV or move heavy furniture or bandage a burned hand, but I can't fix a broken heart. I can't fix a broken relationship. I can't take away their fear, but I can always point them to the one who can. I can always pray with them in the name of Jesus, because there is power in his name. Power to heal, Dan reminded us so vividly last week. Power to overcome fear and persecution and pressure. Let's go through our day as people who are with Jesus, schooled by the master, empowered by his spirit. We will witness glimpses of God's kingdom breaking through in healing and restoration and reconciliation. And when the curtain seems closed and the dark clouds move in, we know that Jesus is still right there with us and we are safe in him. We don't seek persecution. But as we follow Jesus and his commission of going into all the world, we will experience opposition from within and without. Jesus told his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He will give us his courage, his wisdom, and his strength to face anything. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Mysteriously, many Christians who have suffered persecution share how their hardest times in life, they felt closest to God. When we suffer for him, he draws close and gives us a heightened sense of his love for us and grace to endure. And sometimes, even a special glimpse of the divine reality around us, the kingdom among us, heaven invading human space. I love the story of Elisha and his servant when they were surrounded by enemies. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered his scared servant. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All I remember, when my husband David was arrested and expelled 
is that I keenly sensed I was not alone. Jesus was with me. I felt carried. Or as Brother Andrew would put it, one man, one woman with God is a majority. There is a song I love by Annie J. Flint, who suffered from young adulthood until her death from severe arthritis. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Amazingly, after Peter and John were released, they did not pray for protection or for the problem to go away or for the enemies to be crushed, but for boldness to speak. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Makes no sense. Astonishing. Real prayer is not getting God aligned with us, but getting us aligned with what God is already doing. So how did Peter and John deal with persecution? They were with Jesus, being with Jesus, abiding in him. He was their first love. Secondly, speaking his name with boldness and courage, no matter what the opposition threw at them. And thirdly, praying in his name. And even for those who made their life miserable. We can pray in the name of Jesus for those that make our lives miserable. Are you hurting? Do you feel pressure? Stuff you don't put on Facebook? Aches that keep you up at night? I know, I've been there. And I'm not proposing a new cure, but an age-old truth. Be with Jesus daily. Spend time with him and in his word. Speak his name, even if you can only whisper or scream it, and pray in his mighty name. We can bear all difficulties, no matter the source, with him.
you are not alone. And what kind of church do we want to be? I propose a church moving forward in the mighty name of Jesus, not limited by our own wisdom and strength, but unlimited to do more than we can ask or imagine through the power at work within us. I want to finish with the extraordinary story of Brother Andrew, the son of a poor Dutch blacksmith and an invalid mother, God's smuggler, as he came to be known, who died this week at age 94. The real calling, he said, is not a certain place or career, but to everyday obedience. And that call is extended to every Christian, not just a select few, to each one of us. Maybe we can turn the lights off to see the video uh, of Brother Andrew. can't smuggle anymore. That's what you think. Oh! <laughs> I jumped to a conclusion. Yeah. Well, now, the first trip across, you just pulled up to the border. Is that when you prayed and said, God, uh, let the seeing not see at that time? Or was that That's what thing? we call my smuggler's prayer when I say, Lord Jesus, when you were on earth, you've made so many blind eyes to see. Now, it's the same job for you to make seeing eyes blind, but you've got to do it now. And if he doesn't, then I've had it. I cannot outsmart the custom guards. Just think, when I pull my car in there and I get out to show my papers, I've had situations where they took four hours to search. Two fellows in the front of my vehicle, two in the rear, two underneath, and two standing there to watch the expression on my face to see if I was getting nervous. What can you do? And all the time they couldn't find the Bible? No, I've never lost one Bible in 20 years that I've done. to me again through his word. Awake, strengthen what remains, which is at the point of death. Then I understood I have to go to the Christians. I had no idea how to get there. In that one city, okay. But after that, I had no money, no contacts, no language. But something was a warning in my heart. And I said, Lord, yes, but how? I think we in the West, now this is a personal confession, I think we are cowards. We ought to become people of guts and courage and strong convictions and 
don't count our lives dear unto ourselves. to God's commission. It was so big and bold that endeavor. We did it in one night. Time magazine here says it was the boldest expedition that they have ever uh, witnessed in missions. And I'm glad we were part of it. We did it, but we did it in Jesus' name. that I have come of age, more and more people ask, Andrew, what do you want written on your tombstone? I have options. One of them sounds very pious. He's not here, he's risen. Or another option is, he did what he couldn't. Or, like Oswald Chambers' gravestone, I visited that graveyard in Zaytun in Egypt. Oswald Chambers, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That gives glory to God, a disciple of Jesus Christ. <laughs> 